Þá er ekki eftir neina að býða og ég býð bara meðri Murphy velkomna upp á Yfir Bandu, gjörðu vel My name is Mary and I'm an alcoholic It's so great to be here in Reykjavik Did I say it right? Oh my God. I've been practicing and practicing. I have met so many wonderful people here in the room and everybody told me their name and I, I can't remember any name that anybody told me except Sver, whatever his name was because he said to me uh, when I signed his book, he said, sign your sobriety date and then he looked at me and said, oh, that was before I was born. <laughs> uh, oh, thanks. Sver. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I was thinking before I walked up here about going to any lengths to stay sober. And um, a week ago tonight, I was in a, in a little town in Hawaii called Haleiwa. And I took a bus into the town because I wanted to go to an AA meeting. And uh, it turns out that I had to walk about a mile and a half from the bus stop to get to an AA meeting. And I thought, well, that this is really going any lengths. <laughs> Except uh, when I flew from Hawaii to Los Angeles to Minneapolis to Iceland, <laughs> and I was watching on the monitor the plane going by Goose Bay or wherever I went, I kept thinking, this is really going any lengths to get to an AA meeting. <laughs> and I'm really happy to be here. Um, I'm actually thrilled to be here. I've really been looking forward to it, and I brought my park and everything, but of course it's 65, and I don't need any, any of my warm clothes. Um, but I'm really happy to be here because I absolutely love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love sobriety, and I wouldn't have the life I have today if, if I weren't sober. And uh, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I didn't even know... The only thing I knew is that I wanted to stop drinking. And that's the truth. That's the only thing I knew. And the longer I'm sober, the one thing I know for sure, I believe this just so much in my heart, that it is a gift from God that I don't drink. It is an absolute gift from God. Because I know that there was one day in my life when I was a woman who could not pick up a drink. I mean, I would pick up a drink and I could not stop drinking. And the next day, I was a woman who didn't pick up a drink. And it is a miracle. It is a gift from God. But it is not a gift that you get to keep unless you want it. And that of that, I am very clear. It's not a gift that you get to keep unless you go to meetings. And it's not a gift that you get to keep unless you give it away. Um, I am an Irish Catholic and I know I've already seen the city and I know there's only one Catholic church and I already know that it's shorter than all especially all the Lutheran churches <laughs> and uh, Ziggy said it was because of the airport but I don't believe it I just think it was <laughs> on purpose anyway I'm going to take off my coat um, so I'm an Irish Catholic and I am the only member thank you, of my Irish Catholic family that is sober. And my mother is one of 15 children, and my father is one of 11 children. And uh, there are a lot of alcoholics in my family. And we all lived, I don't, I don't know how people live here, but in, in the town I grew up in, which is in the middle of, uh, Saint, the, middle of the country in St. Louis, 
we all lived in the same parish. That's what we called it. So that I lived next door to my Aunt Rosemary and around the corner from my Aunt Helen and up the street from my Aunt Lorraine and down the street from my Aunt Loretta. And so we all lived in the, in the very same neighborhood. And uh, we always had parties and people always drank. Well, not my mother. My mother and her sisters said, I don't know if you know what rosary beads are, but they prayed the rosary for all the people who drank. <laughs> and it seemed to me that my mother and her sisters were praying the rosaries and cooking and all the people who drank were singing and dancing, and it looked like a lot more fun to me. <laughs> but my mother always told me that if I, she said, if you're a woman and you drink, you will destroy your family. Don't ever drink. You will destroy your family. And, um, well, of course, I listened to her until I had my first drink. <laughs> um, I'll just tell you one little thing about my family to give you an idea of, of what it was like. We used to have these parties every single Sunday at our house. And um, we, my father was a, he was the singing bartender at the party, and my brother and all the singers were over there. But uh, my Uncle Joe, who's still alive, he's 80, I think he's 83 or 84 right now. He was a school crossing guard until about three years ago, and he's never breathed a sober breath. And there are many, many kids in St. Louis who almost or nearly or did get hit by a school bus because of him, you know. Oh, come on, you know, let's just you can go across the street. He's so drunk all the time. Anyway, my Uncle Joe would have this box of letters that he um, carried around from my from my dead grandmother and he would every time at a party get drunk and go out to the car get the box bring him in open him up and read these letters and everyone would just sob and cry about the dead grandmother and and they'd sing this song my mother's pearls are her boys and girls no greater treasure is she and just sob and my aunt loretta uh was uh she didn't talk she didn't I mean, she never said a word. Anyway, but she'd sit in the back, and she had this little purse, and in the purse she had a plastic bag, and in the plastic bag she'd open it up, and she had taps, and she'd put them on her shoes, and just get up and wildly dance around the room, and then sit down and kind of pass out, and that was, that was her story, you know? So drinking always looked like fun to me, and it seemed like fun to me, and I wanted to be among the singers. The singers were the drinkers, and I wanted to be among the singers, and... At that point, I didn't drink, and I certainly <laughs> wasn't a very good singer. Um, as I went along in life, and as I got sober, and as I looked back at that family, I could see things that I never saw when I was growing up. For instance, my Aunt Loretta's daughter, my cousin, the, the person who was, you know, you always have a, like a, a brother or a sister or your cousin, whoever's your, your best friend in your family. This is my cousin Rita. And um, when Rita was mm, about 18 or 19, she had a three kids by then, and, and one of her daughters was staying at her grandmother's, and, and the two were at home. And Rita was so drunk that she um, was smoking, and she burned up her apartment, and she, her babies burned to death. And what I remember is, I remember it happened, and I remember my father going out in the middle of the night, and I remember going to the funeral, and I remember that we have never, ever, ever spoken about this since that day. And I don't ever remember seeing my cousin Rita since that day. Because this is the kind of family that I grew up. Whether you're Irish Catholic or you're Lutheran or you're German or whatever you are, there are some families where you don't talk about anything. You do not air your dirty laundry, as my mother said. You do not talk about what's going on. You never, ever, ever say, which we never did, ever say that your father is an alcoholic. 
You never say that the reason my father was a singing bartender at night was that he was an alcoholic. You never say it. You don't talk about it. Um, so that's, that's what I grew up with. That's what I came into AA with. And really, I have to tell you, to this day, my mother, who loves AA, and she turned 89 this week. Anyway, she will not allow me to talk about AA on the telephone because she's afraid somebody's going to be listening, you know? <laughs> So, okay, I don't talk about it on the phone. <laughs> but she loves AA, and she sends me a birthday present for every AA birthday. Anyway, um, so I grew up in this family, and, and I had my first drink when I was in high school. When I was a senior in high school at my prom, and I got mad at the nuns because they didn't like my dress. They thought it was too low, and they sewed. Do you know what netting is? They sewed this netting on to, like, cover my, my chest because they said I was immodest or I don't know. I didn't even know the word. Anyway, so uh, I got mad at the nuns, and I, somebody said, why don't you come out to the back of the gym and have a bourbon and Coke? In the Midwest, bourbon and Coke is a big drink. And I had one bourbon and Coke, and I had two, and I had three. And the next thing I knew, I was doing cartwheels in front of those nuns in that, in that dress. And I, I, today, I sponsor a nun. Do you love it? Oh, my God. You get on your knees, and you say these prayers. Yay! I mean... Really, my goal in life as an Irish Catholic girl was to defy the nuns. I mean, truly, I spent most of my... I went to all-girl Catholic schools. You know, all through. I mean, grade school, high school, and college. Well, of course you'd defy the nuns. (laughs) Anyway, um... So I had my first drink, and then I went off to college in New York, and uh, the drinking age was 18, and I got drunk out of my mind my first weekend in college... And I was campus that's, you know, away for the weekend. The nuns won't let you go out. And everybody knew my name because I was campus, so I was elected president in my class. <laughs> and, uh, and that is really kind of how my drinking uh, went. I was the president of my class. I was a cheerleader. It's not, it's not great. Today, people who are cheerleaders are... You know, it's not very PC, but then it was pretty cool. So I was a cheerleader. I was a president of my class. Um, I was a grade student until I started drinking. And then my grades, of course, declined, as they do. Um, but I loved to drink. I loved, I don't know what possessed me, but I loved to get up on top of tables and, and dance. It just was like my thing. You know, maybe it was my Aunt Loretta's blood in me. I don't know. Um, so I spent four years in New York, and I got kicked out of the college, and then I got back in the college because I wrote them a beautiful letter saying, oh, no, you can't kick me out. So they, they brought me back. Now they're very proud of me. Oh, my God, they're so proud of me. I just got a letter from the... Pre- my little women's college merged with a big college in New York called Fordham University, and I just got a letter from the president of Fordham University last week inviting me to, you know, to come and next time I'm in New York and have lunch with them, and I thought, boy, if this guy ever knew what a wild woman I was. This is how I felt a lot in my in my uh, sobriety, because I, I have kids, and I, I've driven a lot of carpools in my sobriety, you know, because in Los Angeles, you have to drive all the time, and I think, if those mothers ever knew what a wild woman they had driving their kids. Anyway, so I was a wild woman, and I like to drink, and I like to... Uh, but I want to say this. The other thing I, I really... That happened to me um, when I was drinking, and... And something I didn't really know about when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous until I came in 
was that I also had a lot of physical problems. When I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would hear people say, you know, I went to jail. I went to prison. And I'd, I'd think, or I went to a mental institution. And I'd think, what am I doing here? Why am I in this room? I, I've never been to jail. I've never been to a mental institution. You know, what's wrong with me? Or somebody'd say, you know, I, I fell in love with a sheep. Or, you know, I mean, they're really weird. <laughs> Although I must say, when, when we went to the little house today and I saw that sheep, I thought, he is really cute. You know, I could, I could understand. I met the cutest sheep today. Anyway, so, uh, so I would hear these people talk about, you know, uh, these things. And I'd say, well, that never happened to me. But what did happen to me and what I learned, you know, after I was sober is that I started to be hospitalized for for medical conditions. When I was 24, I had a bleeding ulcer. And, uh, well, that's because I had Diet Dr. Pepper for breakfast and donuts. That's what I ate, and, of course, I drank all the time. So uh, I was hospitalized, and they gave me tranquilizers. And uh, then I started to have a really bad back, and I'd go in and out of the hospital all the time, and, and and they gave me pain pills for that. And, um, And so when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't really know... I mean, I didn't understand, you know, when I came in and I went to my first meeting and then somebody took me out for coffee afterward, and she said, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't drink or use. And I said, well, I don't know, what do you, what do you mean by use? And she said, well, we don't take any pills. And I said, well, oh, well, mine are all prescribed by doctors. That's what I said. <laughs> and, of course, they were. <laughs> and... uh so that was the saddest news I'd ever heard <laughs> because because truly I didn't know how when I was new if you're new I did not know how I was going to make it through the day without drinking I didn't know or taking this medicine I I had not had any sober days since I first started when I was in high school. Um, how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous was that, um, you know, I was obviously drinking, but what happened to me is that, that um, instead of drinking and losing everything, what started to happen to me, at least in my career, is that I was drinking and I was gaining everything. And I, and I got a wonderful job. I got a job... Um, I'm a journalist. I got a job as a, as a reporter at my local newspaper. In fact, it was so funny. When I was in Hawaii, I was, I was doing this. I never talk about this stuff, but I, I'm in Iceland. You're not going to tell, right? Anyway, uh, I was doing a story on the Baywatch reunion movie, and I spent the week with Pamela Anderson. Guys, are you so happy? Yeah. And someone named Carmen Electra and someone named Brandy I'd never heard of, but my son was going, Mom, you must get her. You must get her autograph. And it turns out she was the Playboy Playmate of the Year. And I, I didn't even want to ask my son if he read Playboy. So I, I just got the autograph. But anyway, uh, so <laughs> I forgot where I was. Oh, anyway, so I was, you know, in my, I was, I was drinking, but I was just, my career was just taking off. I went from St. Louis to Los Angeles. I got a, a job with this great newspaper in Los Angeles. And then I got a job with a magazine in New York. And I was just traveling all over the world. And I was traveling all over the world as a completely drunken woman. I was traveling all over the world lonely and sad. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I would go. I remember I just 
just remember I'd like go to a bar and and drink and go to my room and cry and all these things that you, you don't even have a clue what is wrong with me I'm in London I'm in the most beautiful hotel in London and I'm sitting here at two in the morning in the bar by myself crying now what what's the problem here I didn't know what the problem well I thought I thought it was something I thought it was well it wasn't PMS for sure I was 22 but I, I don't know what it was but I mean I was crying and so the way I got sober is I, my, and my back was very bad, and I had to work out in this gym. And uh, my, the first time anybody had ever mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous to me was at, a, was at a party. And it was a party in Hollywood. And I'll never forget, it was like the most beautiful party. Even, even the waiter had on tails, you know, and they had this thing. And this woman said, uh, the, he said, would you like a drink? And this woman said, no, no thanks, I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, she is really sick. This... <laughs> This woman announced to this waiter in tails that she was an alcoholic, you know. And about two hours later, I jumped into the pool, and I still don't know whether I had my clothes on or off. I, I, I don't remember. But I thought she was sick. But it was... I remembered it. And then I started working out at this gym, and I started talking. The guy who ran the gym... Now, remember, you know, 25 years ago, because I'm sober 25 years, people were not running around saying... You know, I'm sober. I'm, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. They were not breaking their anonymity. Today, because I, you know, I live in Hollywood and I work in Hollywood, these people are sober a week. And they're on the cover of People magazine and they are, you know, on the talk shows. We, we had a woman who came to our group for, of course, a very short time, but she's she was maybe sober 25 days. She started a website for recovery. I just love this, you know. Uh, they never, ever come back to meetings, you know. And if you're new, that is the only way to stay sober, to come to meetings, to work the steps, to read the book, to give back, and to continually do it for the rest of your life. But these people come, and they announce their sobriety, and they get their great job, and then they're, you know, then they're not sober anymore. Just thought it was just in the paper yesterday, some guy, you know, he was, you know, some big actor who'd been sober forever, he told everybody, and of course was just arrested for drunk driving. Um, but, um, so this guy, but he told everybody, he said, you know, he was sober, and so I started to ask him questions. I said, you know, I, I remember leaving my house a lot of time, but I don't, I don't remember what happens afterward. I can't, I can't remember anything. I, I don't, I don't know what's happening to me. And, uh, I, so I'd say, do you think I might be an alcoholic? And he'd say, uh, you know, you might be. Because this is the way. It is a program of attraction. It is not uh, a program where you must get sober. Because if anybody said that to me, I just drank more. So then, you know, I'd start to ask him other questions. Like, I remember once I left my car. My last really big drunk in Los Angeles, I left my car in the middle of, like, a huge intersection. It'd be like leaving it parked at the airport, you know, going off to a party. <laughs> but anyway, I just left it there. So I finally said to him, I said, you know, I, um, I was really embarrassed. I went to the Academy Awards. I was very, very excited about going to the Academy Awards. And, uh, and I went, and I remember what dress I had on, but then I also had this horrible memory of not of being in the Academy Awards and suddenly being outside the Academy Awards in the bushes with these two guys. And, and I, I said to him, you know, do you think I might be an alcoholic? <laughs> the guys were gay, don't worry, nothing happened. I think I just slipped and got in the middle of them or something, you know. 
But anyway, one of them is sober, and the other one's still defending his right to drink. But um, uh, he said, you might be. So finally, um, I had my last drink. Not, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even my worst night. You know, it was just one of those nights where you leave your purse one place and your coat another place and your car another place. And you can't remember who brought you home. And you're sitting alone on your sofa. And you've got that bottle of wine, and uh, and you're calling people on the telephone, you know, in another time zone, <laughs> and uh, crying to them about your sad life, you know, and uh, and that's that's what I remember, and I remember humiliating, embarrassing myself that night, and then I remember the next day I said I, I just can't do this anymore, so I came to AA, and um, I came to AA, and then I found out the horrible news that you know you can't do anything, you have to be completely sober. And then I began to completely fall apart. I mean, I, I was talking to all these newcomers before the meeting, and uh, I was talking to somebody who's seven months sober and somebody who's 13 months sober, and I said, you know, when I was your time of sobriety, I was completely crazy. And then, and then I, said, uh, I said, but you're probably sane. And then I said, do you understand the meaning of the word sane? And they said, well, no, because that's why we're here. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's true. You know, that's, I was so crazy. I just cried. At my first meeting, somebody said, you know, we love you in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sobbed. And it was the first time I'd ever cried anywhere that people didn't say to me, what is wrong with you? Because they knew what was wrong with me. They got it. They knew what was wrong with me. They knew that I was a hopeless, helpless alcoholic with the facade of having a great life. And I was so lonely inside and so frightened and so far away from who I really was as a human being. So far away from who I was brought up to be. My first three years of sobriety were just a nightmare. I mean that sincerely. Um, I had a sponsor, and I called her occasionally, and occasionally she called me back. And uh, here's what happened to me, really short version of my first couple years. I, um, I was married, but I, I hadn't been, I was getting a divorce, and so I was not living with my husband. And about a month before I got sober, I met somebody else, and we bought a house together. We'd bought a house together about a week before I got sober. And at my second AA meeting, I sat on a chair, like, where where this guy's sitting? There were keys on the chair, and I threw them on the floor and sat down, and a guy came and tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, you know, that's my chair. And I looked up, and I thought, you are so cute. And He became my boyfriend in my first year of sobriety. There was just one little glitch. He was gay. (laughs) So I had a very confusing life when I was newly sober. And he was always slipping, and I was always saying to him, okay, if you slip one more time, that's it. You know, I'm not your friend anymore. And we are friends today, and it's great, you know. But you can see how I would cry at every meeting. I was just, you know, completely loco. I finally got a sponsor I could talk to at uh, nine months. And I worked the steps with her. I started to work the steps with her. I did my inventory with her. And um, my inventory was long, but not as long as some I've read. Trust me, I've, I've read inventories that are as long as a miniseries, as, as far as I'm concerned. One took three nights, really. It was like a three-night miniseries. I just couldn't take it after two hours every night. I think, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Anyway, so, um, but it was long, and uh, 
The number one thing that came out of that inventory, as far as I am concerned, that changed my life in the most profound way, is that um, I didn't know that when I left St. Louis and my family to go off to New York and then to Los Angeles and then travel the world, I didn't know that I missed them. I didn't know that I loved them. I didn't know that I yearned to be part of the family. It hurt so bad that I cut them off. I just cut them off with my drinking. And I was embarrassed by what I was doing with my drinking, and I, I, I just couldn't bear to be, to be with them. And when I read my inventory, it was very clear to me that the number one thing I had to do in my life is reunite with my family. It was just the number one thing. And I went back to St. Louis, and I was so terrified because my mother is, well, she would be the queen of Al Anon. She would be an Al Anon black belt if she ever went, but she's still an Al Anon black belt. But anyway, I was, so, I was so afraid to tell her that I was, what was happening to me, that I went to my own hometown, and instead of going home to stay in my mother's house, I, I checked into a hotel. <laughs> so my mother came to the hotel and knocked on the door and said, Come on, you're coming home. And I did. And my mother. Um, I made amends to my mother, and I talked to my mother, and I told her, she asked me one question, a question that I, I wish so much my mother had never asked me, because it, to me, an Irish Catholic was the hardest question that she ever asked me. She said to me, did you ever get drunk and go to a bar and, and like meet a strange man? She asked me that question. I couldn't believe her, and I told her, yes, I did. And it was the first time in 15 years I'd ever told my mother the truth about who I was. And from that moment to this moment, I have had a wonderful relationship with her. It's not always been easy. I mean, when an Al-Anon black belt is in, in your corner, they're really in your corner in all ways. But um, I started to build my relationship with my family, you know, first with my mother and then with my brother. That's, that one's been very rocky. But with my brother, with all my cousins, suddenly all my cousins started pouring into my life. And I remember once they decided to come for a visit to Los Angeles. No, not one, not two, not five, 20. At 20, 20 of my cousins staying in my house. <laughs> and, uh, and so I started to, and, and what happened is I, I started to kind of connect. Because that's what happens when you're drinking, is you disconnect from who you are. You're just, you can't find who you are. It's like a computer when you're putting the, thing in the sockets where it fits you know it's the right computer or the right uh, um, whatever I'm not very good at technology but you got what I mean anyway so um, and I started to connect to who I was and then um, but I wasn't my sobriety was my sobriety was pretty iffy because um, I just as I said I had a sponsor I could talk to but not a sponsor I listened to and if you're new I want you to understand the difference you, if you have a sponsor you can talk to, talk, talk, talk. That's good. But if you have a sponsor that you don't listen to, that's not good. And what happened to me is I didn't listen to my sponsor. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't listen to anything she said because uh, um, I was too busy talking, I guess. And... Uh, She'd say things to me that were like allegories. That was the problem. I, I, 
I can read allegories, but I can't listen. I didn't know what she was saying. She'd say, that's like sailing a small ship into a big storm. And I'd sort of get it, but I, I'd think, oh, well, you know, maybe the storm will shift to the east, and I'll, and I'll get through. I mean, that's how it was. So anyway, uh, when I was about three years sober, I decided to buy a house in... Uh, I had been trying to surrender a lot. I really had. I really had been trying to surrender. If you knew, of course, it is the most essential thing that you ever have to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. You have to surrender. I mean, at the depths of your, your emotional and spiritual being. And uh, I'd been trying. I'd been trying to do these things like they talked to Nay. said they'd say, throw the towel in. So I'd run into my bathroom and throw the towel in or it's just as easy as getting rid of a new pair of shoes and I'd get rid of a new pair of whatever I was doing I was trying to do going to meetings but I was just crazy and so trying to buy this house and and I bought the house and I didn't think about it and I didn't ask anybody in AA and I didn't ask my sponsor I just bought the house and I put down $30,000 I bought the house and I was living in it and I got a phone call from a guy saying when are you going to be paying the $90,000 wraparound loan due one year after purchase. And I, I, didn't, I didn't even know I had a $90,000 loan due one year after purchase. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, and, and if you're new and you're really in trouble, this is what I did. I hung up the phone and I just didn't talk about it to anybody because it was so terrifying. I just couldn't talk about it. It was so terrifying. They started sending me these letters. If you've ever been in trouble, the, the, they, they doubled the print size. So it's huge. And I had to hire a lawyer, and then I had to go meet the guy who was foreclosing on my house. And really, my best solution at three years of sobriety to my problems is I started dating the guy who was foreclosing on my house. (laughs) God. I don't think I even liked him, but, you know... It wasn't a necessity, I felt. <laughs> anyway, the joking aside, you can see how close I was to drinking. I mean, you can see that I was, I was never going to stay sober with this kind of pressure and this kind of behavior and this kind of crazy stuff. So anyway, I went to a meeting one night. And there was a guy speaking, not, not somebody I even liked. I mean, I, I'd heard about him, and, but I didn't like him very much and I thought he was a tyrant and one of these dictators in AA and so I sat in the front where our sweet pregnant girl is we have two pregnant girls and they're best friends they drank together and they got sober together and they're both pregnant together I know this whole story anyway (laughs) so um, I, I started crying this guy was talking and I was just weeping and he didn't say I almost ruined his talk but he glared at me so I felt like I felt like he was saying it but anyway I went up to shake his hand after the, after the meeting, and uh, he said, why don't you come and have a cup of coffee with me tomorrow? And I did. And I don't know why I did. Um, and, I don't, and this is my moment. This was my moment in sobriety. Everybody has to have their moment in sobriety. Maybe you're going to have your moment when you're 30 days sober, and maybe you're 60 days sober, maybe you're 8 months sober. Maybe you're 12 years sober. But you have to have your moment in sobriety where you absolutely surrender to Alcoholics Anonymous. You absolutely have to have it. And this was, this was what happened. And I went down to um, have a cup of coffee with this guy. He runs a mission on Skid Row. And uh, he, um, he talked to me. And 
I think he was the first person in Alcoholics Anonymous that ever really talked to me about saying things like, you know, you have a great education, you know, and you have a good mind, and why aren't you using it, and why aren't you doing AA the right way? And I, I didn't even know what he meant. I, I didn't even know what he meant, doing AA the right way. And um, so then he, I told him about my, my boyfriend who was foreclosing on me, <laughs> and his eyes kind of rolled in the back of his head, and, and, uh, and he said, um, I'm going to do something... He, he said, let's take a walk through Skid Row, and, and he wrote me a note. And we walked through Skid Row in Los Angeles, past the bums and the boxes, and all the people on the street, drunk, and, you know, all the places, you know, well, we're not going to go there, right? I'm not, I'm not going to go to Skid Row ever, am I? Am I ever going to go to Skid Row? Well, I didn't think so. But anyway, um, he took me for a walk, and he said, what I'm going to ask you to do is as difficult as asking these guys to stop drinking wine. And... He had asked me in, in his office, when was I going to see my boyfriend again? And I said I was going to take him to a play called Evita the next night. And so as we were walking through Skid Row, he handed me a note. And the note said, tear up the tickets to Evita and cancel out. And that note and my acceptance of it and my willingness to call that boyfriend and not just say I can't go to Evita, but I'm never seeing you again as long as I live, my willingness to change all my meetings to surrender to Alcoholics Anonymous, to a sponsor, to a voice that was louder than my own, uh, was the beginning of my incredible change in this program. I always loved AA. I always loved it. But I couldn't surrender to it. I couldn't. I just thought I knew best, and I didn't. And so I had to start a whole new way of, uh, of, of sobriety. Of course, number one is I couldn't date. That was, that was number one. And... Uh, which was a good thing, and uh, I had to go to all these meetings, and I couldn't get up. I loved to get up during the meetings. Oh, my God, when I was new, I just moved around all the time. I couldn't sit still. I could never sit still in a meeting, and I had to sit still in a meeting. And, and then the worst, I had to be places on time. I always was late. And I like by late, I mean, like, I, wanna, I, want, I just want to race in my car, just race, race, you know, throw the stoplights. I know I'm going to be on time, and I just get there, and I'd be, you know, five minutes late, and... And I, so I finally said, I, I just don't know how to be on time. And he said, leave early. And I thought, wow, that's a great concept. So I started to do this very basic AA. Leave early. You know, be on time. Get a commitment. I had a brownie cutting commitment. At my meeting of 1,300 people, I cut brownies. And, and uh, I thought at that point, you know, AA allows us to be one of, we're just, we're just all here together. Nobody's special. You know, you're in this seat tonight, and you might be in that seat tomorrow, and it's so great. But, you know, I thought I was so special and uh, because I had this job that would take me all these great places. And I just remember I'd get to that brownie cutting committee. They didn't care who I was or what I was. They just want to know, did you cut the brownies? And did you do it the right way? Were they a quarter of an inch? And if you didn't, you had to go back and cut the damn brownies the right way. I just hated it, but I did it. And... Um, and my life started to settle down. And uh, it started to settle down in a way that I didn't know. And uh, I always have read the book. Always, always have read the book. Of course, I was going to come up. This is what I thought before that. I'll just breeze through the book right there on the table so that I remember a few little words from it. But, of course, all the words I read were like, because it was all in Icelandic. So I, mean, I have no idea. But And they said it isn't even on the same page. But I started to read, you know, page 63 and... 
and all the things about being not being the director of your own life and about fear. God, fear is just one of the things that I tell you the fears. And, and when I was really tired flying over here and when I'm really tired, I get... I have a lot of fear sometimes, and the fear in my head. And, and I've had to learn, you know, to surrender false evidence appearing real. You know, I've had to learn these very basic things like halt, don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. These are things that if you're new, I mean, I can just get crazy if I don't sleep and really crazy if I don't eat. So I started to do a much more basic form of AA, which is a form of service. Um, and everybody's service is different. Every, some people cut the brownies and some people are the secretary. You know, some people speak and, and some people clean up. It doesn't matter what you're... So some people sponsor and some people are the secretary, you know, of a convention. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters is you start to give. What matters is that somehow AA becomes the thing that is primary in your life. And it is primary in my life. And what happened in my life is that it changed in a way that I had no idea. What it, it changed in a way that brought me back to who I really am. First of all, I, I, um, I met a man, and he had, he had the thing that I had. The doctors had always said to me, you know, you'll never be able to have a baby. So, you know, that's it. And I met this man, and he had a two-year-old baby. And uh, the mother had just disappeared. And, um, and I just... I'm telling you, I fell in love with that kid so big time. That little kid was just the most adorable little kid you've ever seen. And, and we got married, and, and we had this little kid. And, um, and really about literally, you know, uh, well, I had a little, there was a, there was a little problem. It was kind of a shotgun wedding. <laughs> but I was kind of old for a shotgun wedding. And then, uh, and then something happened, and I lost the baby. And then suddenly, right away, I got pregnant again. I'd never been pregnant my whole life. And, uh, and I had a baby, and my daughter's name is Megan. And Megan is now in college, and Nicholas is in law school. And I'll tell you something, you know, if you're new, one of the hardest jobs I ever had in my sobriety was to be a mother. I mean, really, working is easy in comparison to being a mother because you have to be there all the time. You know, that new phrase, 24-7. Now, all these producers in Hollywood are all talking about how they're working 24-7. Well, forget it. You know, 24-7 is being a mother. That's really what it is, 24-7. And I, um, and I had this baby, Nicholas, and uh, it turned out that Nicholas had a lot more problems than I ever, ever, ever thought he would have. I didn't really didn't compute that if, if a mother abandons a child, that child's going to have a lot of problems, and that's what happened to Nicholas. And I tried so hard, and AA would help me, I'm telling you, I would come into these meetings just crazy, and, and people, like, there was one guy, he was, he was like an ex-convict who'd murdered somebody. He was some, like one of my great consuls about being a mother, because you never know. You never know. One time, uh, Nicholas was so bad, I didn't know what to do. He was like beating his head against the wall, so I sat on him. You know, I don't think that was very good. I don't think Dr. Spock would recommend it. But anyway, I was so upset about myself as being a mother. I thought, this is it. This is it. I'm done. And I went to the meeting, and, you know, I ran into this <laughs> convict and, you know, he said, well, just don't sit on him anymore, you know, and don't hit him. And I was like, okay, well, great, you know, thanks. And I thought, gee, I went to Marymount College where we wear gloves, and this convict is giving me advice. And that, but that's how it goes in AA. You just never know who's going to give you advice. You never know. You know, you keep all your options open because you never know who's going to help you. So anyway, 
he helped me and um and my son just was i mean and still is to this day can be extremely troubled but he graduated from high school and he got a scholarship to college and he's now in law school and this summer, although he tormented me a great deal, uh, he worked for the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, and they give you this report card at the end, and you get a grade in every single category. He got outstanding. It was just, it was just amazing. I mean, he is as tormented in his own emotional way as we are as alcoholics. But he just doesn't have a place to go, and he just won't go. He won't go to Al-Anon or anything like that, you know, because. It's not for me, Mom. I don't like to hear all those people talking about their emotions. Oh, okay, Nick, you know. And my daughter, Megan, is just a delight in my life. I love her so much. I'm saying a prayer for her right now because she's trying out for... She's been called back to do Juliet in her school play of Romeo and Juliet. I'm so excited. I just want her to get it. But anyway, uh, Megan is a little Al-Anon. She's gone to Al-Anon. I took her to Al-Anon. In fact, I've tried to take everybody in my family to Al-Anon. I'm the only one that likes it. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. This is this was one of my real moments in the program. I took my child to Al-Anon, and she got up and shared in front of me about her parents. Oh, my God. Everybody was looking at me, and I was trying to beam proudly, but I thought, get that kid off the podium. <laughs> but she softened up, and she's, she knows that she has a place to go with her emotions. Um, I guess the only last... You know, two things I want to say uh, about Alcoholics Anonymous um, is that it works. You know, in all areas of your life, this is this is what I have found. I mean, truly, I've had a tremendous amount of physical problems in my sobriety. I've had a lot of times when I couldn't stand up. I mean, I spent a whole year in bed once in my sobriety. I've spent months in bed over and over again repeatedly with my back I've been in and out of the hospital in and out of the hospital and I wanted so much to be sober I absolutely wanted to be sober and if you're new or if you're old you know that these drugs like Vicodin are just the slip drugs of our generation they don't work they will take you out and you will die and that's what happened to a lot of people I know and I'll tell you what, the only way I did this is I kept as close to my sponsor as I possibly could. I was in the hospital. Of course, they give you medicine. You don't have back surgery, you know, a couple times. If, you know, they're not, you're not sitting up going, hi, guys, how you going? You know, what's, what's happening here? You know, they really are, you're out. And obviously, you have to take some, some I never took a pill without talking to medicine. Not once. And I mean, and you know, your, your voice would say to you, well, why do I need to do this? You know, this is for pain. But you know what? I did it. I never failed doing it. And I'm sober. And that's the reason why, because so many people go out. It is truly the way I see. I can't tell you how many people I run into meetings that are gone because of drugs. You know, pain medicine, pain medicine, pain medicine. And um, I guess the other thing is the thing I'll close with is I... I also, I guess, you know, we all have our addictions and our demons, you know, once we come in. It's like they're, you know, you work the steps, and every time you work the steps, you find out something, and you make your amends, and you still find out things. And, and I used to shop a lot. That was really my thing, shop, shop, shop. I still, I looked at the mall today. I didn't go in, because that's because Cliff wouldn't walk with me, but I... I, I 
<laughs> I wanted to, but anyway. What happened to me is this. Is I shopped a lot, and I couldn't figure out why, and I wanted to try to stop, and we have all these classes, and I did all these things, and I just, I don't know, I just couldn't stop. And finally I wrote a little inventory. I wrote an inventory. It was one paragraph long. I wrote an inventory about... Um, the street I grew up on, the house I grew up in, and the neighborhood I grew up in, 4215 Penrose, St. Louis, Missouri. And I read it to Clancy, and um, and uh, and it was about the shame I felt of being poor, really. The shame, truly the shame of being poor, and always in my whole life being around girls who were so wealthy in my schools, and then this jet-set life, and... And I just felt it, and I couldn't get rid of it. I just couldn't get rid of it. And I, I read it to Clancy, and, and about two weeks or a month later, and I was speaking, I was speaking in, in my hometown, St. Louis, and Clancy was also speaking there. And, and after I spoke, he said, come on, I want to take you for a ride, and he did. And, and I said, where are we going? He said, I want to take you to 4215 Penrose. I want you to show me that place. And all the humiliation, all the shame, everything came up in me, and I just, but I took him, and I said, oh, this is my Aunt Loretta lived, and my Aunt Lorraine, and blah, 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 and I said, oh, you don't want to hear this, he said, no, I want to hear everything, and I told him, and I took him, and I showed him where I went to school, and and uh, as I was talking to him about my neighborhood, and the priest, and the nuns, and the whatever, he said, oh, you, you love this neighborhood, right, and I said, oh, I loved this neighborhood, it's just that I had attached to it being poor and I wanted to hide it. And the day I found out that I loved my neighborhood was the day the last piece, no, no, not the final piece of my but but one of the biggest pieces, the biggest holes inside of me was filled. And it was like an exorcism. I'm not saying Clancy is an exorcist, but I'm telling you that that day he was. And it was like an exorcism. I don't know what happened to me. And suddenly it was that piece that thing that I'd carried forever, that misconception of how I grew up disappeared. And, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous gives you so much more than just the ability, well, it doesn't. God gives you. God takes away the obsession to drink. But Alcoholics Anonymous gives you the ability to love, to give back, to have a kind of joy that you would never ever ever know that sober laughter that we know you'd never know this i live in the world all the time we all do i travel all the time in the world of people who are you know they're not nearly as happy as we are because we get it we get it we our lives have been saved we get it and when you go forward in life when you know that your life has been saved and this is the second chance and that we're all in it together and that it gets more beautiful as it goes along, even though there's a lot of pain. Trust me, I've been through a lot of pain in the last year or so. But I'm telling you, I wouldn't miss this. I wouldn't miss a day of it, and I don't even want to miss a minute of it. And I am so pleased to have been asked to speak here in Iceland. And I just want you to know that my grass skirt from Hawaii is on the left side of my suitcase, and my park is on the right. <laughs> And I, I'm much, actually, I'm so much happier here than I was there, even though it was beautiful. I'm just happy to see all these smiling faces and these young people. Thank you ever, ever so much. <laughs>